This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Meanwhile, in an abandoned warehouse. My name's Owen Kelly and I'm here on my own today because Sophie, who's usually here with me, is off doing other things. Hopefully she'll be back next month when once again she and I will be looking at current events through the lens of cultural democracy. For the moment I want to start the year off not with a set of New Year's resolutions because I'm not actually convinced they're very useful, but rather with a set of reflections and I'm simply using the new year as a convenient peg to hang these reflections upon and in order basically to get me out of my torpor and force me to think through what I've been thinking for some time and shape it into a coherent form and say it out loud. Okay, I want to start this by uh, quoting from L.M. Sacassus's newsletter, The Convivial Life. This is a free email newsletter and I've posted the URL in the uh, show notes on meow.net. It's a thoroughly interesting read, not necessarily a very frequent read, but thoroughly interesting, and I recommend subscribing to it. In the current issue of The Convivial Life, he writes, The human-built world is already unaligned to human values and well-being, because it operates at a scale and according to a logic that elude our comprehension and confound our agency. And this is so largely because it exists beyond the reach of ordinary language. The realm of speech, specifically its public and thus political quarters, increasingly becomes the realm of exasperating and maddening futility. And we may all be forgiven for feeling as if we are the idiots whose words, however full of sound and fury, finally signify nothing, and more to the point, effect no change in the world. Just as in the modern West, faith was deemed too irrational and volatile for the public sphere, and thus relegated to the relative obscurity of private life, so now it seems that language itself is being banished to the realm of the private, which is to say that whatever pretenses to the contrary, real power no longer resides in ordinary human speech. We are not ruled by words, but by formula and algorithms and those who wield them. Words, I would note, are at the heart of the Cultural Democracy Project, which is about communication between people, between communities, between groups of communities, and a belief that people are the best judges of their own needs and their own desires. I want to present three elements of this which I think are worth bringing back to our attention. They're all things we've talked about in different ways in different episodes of the podcast but I want to think about them again briefly. The first one is the idea of fighting for something rather than fighting against something. Right-wing populism works, I would argue, because it identifies clear and easily explainable goals. It then goes on to identify 
obstacles and opponents. People, institutions, social customs that prevent us achieving the goals we want for our right-wing nirvana. The left, on the other hand, tends to try and be rational, to try and explain, to over-explain, to say in effect, oh, it's all much more complicated than that. We need to take a lot of things into consideration. We need to think about the whole picture. And in the end, that results in not being able to explain to other people what we want to achieve, why we want to achieve it, and how we intend to attempt to achieve it. We can see two examples of this at the moment in Britain and America, both of which are in pre-election periods. In America, the Democratic Party seems to be fighting primarily on the basis that Joe Biden is not as bad as Donald Trump, and inviting people to vote Democratic because that way they'll prevent Donald Trump becoming president again. That's not much of a platform, in my view. Vote for A, he's not as bad as B. It's not exactly inspiring. In Britain, the Labour Party finds itself in an equivalent position. The Conservatives have ruled for almost 15 years, if I remember correctly. And everybody, even hardcore Conservatives, have begun to acknowledge that the government has run out of steam, that it's run out of workable ideas, that none of what it's attempted has actually come to pass in the way that they intended, and that it's time for a change. And Keir Starmer, the leader of the British Labour Party, seems to be fighting the election not on a clear vision of what Britain might be like, if it was regenerated, if it's re renewed, but on a vision that says, I could manage all, the me all this mess slightly better than the Conservative Party. I'm more sensible. I'm, I'm fairer. I'm more the sort of person you'd like it to meet on a train. Vote for me. These are not compelling reasons to change direction. These are not compelling visions of a future. These are not optimistic. A pessimistic view that says, oh well, things aren't working, but I could probably make them work a bit better. We need to move beyond this. We need to have a clear vision of what cultural democracy might be, what it might entail, and a clear set of practical ideas about how we might move in that direction. Now, let's be clear here, I'm not saying we should abandon fighting against, I'm not proposing some artificial either-or here. I'm not suggesting either we fight for something or we fight against something. Of course we continue, we have to continue, fighting against injustice where we find it. We can recognise, for example, that the Harvard president, Claudine Gay, did not resign over a relatively trivial plagiarism accusation. As she herself said, she was the victim of an ambush. And that ambush had served as the culmination of a long period of harassment. And that harassment had been organised in the end by a right-wing cabal, financed by a couple of billionaires. 
and we must fight alongside her in the battles that, as she says, are much wider than the Harvard presidency itself. We must remember, as Zadie Smith, the English author, has said, that progress is never permanent, will always be threatened, must be redoubled, restated and reimagined if it's to survive. And that's why we need optimism and a clear goal, even if that goal is anchored in hope and may not prove achievable in its final form in our own lifetimes. Let me propose a thought experiment at this point. Let's imagine that scientists discover, a consensus of scientists discover, that an asteroid will smash into the Earth in 20 years' time, and that this asteroid is larger than the one that smashed into the Earth, rendering the dinosaurs extinct, and that it is likely that this asteroid will destroy all or most of life as we know it on Earth, and certainly all human life and all human civilization. What would happen, do you think? I would suggest what would happen would be exactly the same as if scientists discovered that man-made climate disaster was likely to come to a climax in about 20 years' time, rendering much of our current mode of living impossible. People would carry on as normal, some people would argue that the scientists have got their figures wrong. You watch, they'll readjust them in five years' time. They'll be saying there's no climate crisis. In five years' time, they'll be saying there's no asteroid. In ten years' time, they'll be saying that uh, the asteroid is going to miss the Earth. And in any case, they'll probably have invented an anti-gravity beam by the time that uh, the asteroid gets nearer. So we'll just carry on as normal. I'll carry on going to work. You carry on going to work. We'll all just carry on. Life will go on. Somebody else will sort this out. Which I would argue is exactly what's happening at the moment with the climate crisis. Okay, then what would happen if scientists announced that the asteroid would hit the Earth in two years' time? My suggestion is that uh, people would carry on as normal in a sense of mild heightened panic still believing that it's somebody else's problem, there are experts for this sort of thing, and with a, some hope engendered by Hollywood that in the final reel, the scientists would all come together, probably led by Jeff Goldblum, and announce that they had discovered the means to invent an anti-gravity ray, and they had just tested it, and it was going to divert the asteroid. Whoops, there it goes, but it hit Venus instead. What would happen if the scientists told us that the asteroid was going to strike in two months, two weeks, or two days? Presumably it's at one of these time periods, people would stop acting normally. People would be forced to stop imagining that some unnamed experts would solve the problem in their name. And what would they do instead? Well, I can see three things that people might do each of which, I suppose, has its own merits and demerits. Firstly, people might pray. People might pray to either a god they believe existed, or to a god they made up, or to a god like the god of science. Please help us, please, please, please get Jeff Goldblum to invent the death ray now, etc. 
People might continue praying until the asteroid hit the world and that would be that. Other people might party. They might say, well, that's it. To hell with social norms. Let's raid the drinks cupboard. Let's go and score some drugs. Let's have wild orgies. Let's just party our way into oblivion. And that has its merits. It, certainly if there's nothing else to do, if you actually accept you're completely helpless, then you may as well accept the acceptance and go off and find some fun way to die. If death's inevitable, why would you say, well, I'm just off to the office, dear. Uh, if, I don't, if, if doom is at three o'clock and I don't see you again, uh, it was nice knowing you, bye. Why wouldn't you party? Well, one reason you, the, you might not party is because there's a third option. And the third option is to do with posterity. We might say, well, we've got 48 hours or 48 days or whatever it is. Let's see what we can do. Let's write some stuff, gather some stuff together that represents us, not human beings, but us. And let's find somewhere to bury it. Is there a deep mine shaft? Is there a cave nearby? Let's put it somewhere. Nothing may happen to it. It may just get exploded into space. But perhaps, you know, when, when life re-evolves on Earth in five million years' time, whatever the new species is, if a new species arrives that gains consciousness, gains language, gains a sense of self, then perhaps they will find it. And they will look back and see that there was a civilization here previously. So let's let's be optimistic and think of posterity and let's put some stuff that represents us somewhere we'll, as safe as we can and hope for the best. Which of course again is not an either or. We could be doing that while raiding the drinks cupboard and having fun. So those are, I think are the three ways and I mentioned this because I think the third way is, is one which refuses to give up, refuses to abandon the idea of optimism. And that, I suggest, is the position that we should always be in, a refusal to abandon optimism. Even though we can't necessarily see how we're going to get from here to there in the next five years, how we might worry that we're not going to achieve anything like equity, anything like democracy, anything like cultural democracy, before the climate crisis kicks in and international capitalism dooms us all. Nonetheless, we should not abandon optimism. Second point, whilst not abandoning optimism, we need to remain consistently inclusive. One of the things that populists do when they organise is that they bring groups together without being too fussy about their membership. Put this another way, they are ready to forgive transgressions to an almost bizarre extent because they're, if they're concerned with ends, not means. We, an example of this is, is Christian evangelical groups in America and Donald Trump. Donald Trump spent most of his life before going into presidential politics living the kind of life that evangelical Christians would despise and condemn. Numerous marriages, numerous affairs, business deals that are 
close to illegal, if not actually illegal. Uh, something, a life devoted entirely to the ego, to the self, etc. Not a lot of humility on offer. All of these things, evangelical Christians should have condemned. And indeed, probably did condemn. Yet, as soon as Trump became popular, as soon as it became clear Trump was likely to be president, all of this melted away and they adopted a public posture that said Trump is an imperfect vessel. How just like the Lord to choose an imperfect vessel to effect the changes that we need. And they attached themselves to his bandwagon. We, on the other hand, the left, has historically always preferred internal feuding to external campaigning. They've always, we have always, demanded purity at an almost superhuman level before admitting people to groups. I can think of a ridiculous example of this that struck, has stuck in my mind since the early 1970s when I, I witnessed it. There was a weekend at Battersea Arts Centre in South London, which was a set of lectures, discussions and performances around the idea of music and revolution. It was led by two very different factions, if you like. Uh, Henry Cow was a avant-garde rock band signed to the Virgin label who believed that to make music to serve revolutionary purposes, you need to make music that is not uh, sullied with capitalism. So you need to make music that is itself, in its form, revolutionary. The other faction was led by Cornelius Cardew, who was, perhaps ironically, uh, a former avant-garde composer and musician of note, who had converted to being a Marxist ideologue and campaigner. And he now firmly believed what the workers needed were Pete Seeger-like songs that they could sing on marches. Now, there was a possible opportunity here to have a series of very interesting discussions between opposing points of view, but the cadre around Cornelius Cardew adopted a position that nowadays would be called something like cancel culture, and they went around trying to disrupt the Henry Cow-led or Henry Cow sympathetic lectures and discussions, arguing and muttering to themselves that just wait till the revolution, you'll be the first to go, you'll be up against the wall, you're not, in, you're not on but the workers' side, etc. So rather than have the discussion that might have proved them correct, and rather than have a set of bracing arguments, they simply tried to shut down the other side's arguments, having decided that they were the other side. And that's the point. You can't get more fringe than 120 people in an art centre in South London meeting in an early spring workshop for a weekend to discuss the relationship between revolution and music. As events go in the history of culture, it was resoundingly trivial. And yet, even there, a group of leftists could not resist the opportunity to drive half of the attendees out in order to leave only the purists there.
There's a desperate need today among some groups to find hidden transphobia, hidden anti-Semitism, hidden homophobia. There's a desperate need to dig up people's histories and to triumphantly announce that this person who is allegedly on our side, in fact, 16 years ago, wrote a tweet that is, if you look at it in a particular way, implicitly transphobic. Or there are people who hold different beliefs about complicated issues and people who disagree about how certain groups relate to certain other groups. We need to admit that the world is complicated and that all the paths forward from wherever we are will be strewn with thorns and rocks and difficult to walk. We need also to admit that people fuck up in fact, fucking up is at the very heart of being a person. And that if we're waiting to find saints, then we may as well just all pack up now and just stop worrying about anything. We need to stop falling into the traps that are set for us, or we'll end up campaigning for allies like Claudine Gay to be fired. We'll end up effectively doing, doing the authoritarian rights work for it. In fact, arguably, much of what we're doing in the world of social media is doing the authoritarian rights work for it. If an extreme right de demagogue wanted to crush all opposition, then constructing an institution like Twitter would be an ideal way of going about it. Setting up something where everything you ever said is waiting to be dug up and misconstrued. We need to adopt a posture something like the, the posture of Vedanta Hindus who argue that everything is useful, that every error is a step on the way to truth. We need to embrace people who have fucked up. Obviously we, they need to admit they've fucked up, I mean let's be clear about that. But we need to get beyond a position where we are holier, the holier-than-thou position and insist that we are as inclusive as we can possibly be and knowing that that will mean that there are people inside our groups who disagree with other people inside our groups and that is how we move forward in my view. The third thing I want to talk about is the idea of becoming smaller. Let me explain this. A project I'm currently working on, uh, somebody asked, can this be scaled up? And this made me realise that I don't think that the idea of scaling up is ever appropriate to cultural projects, or projects to do with human beings, in fact. To, quote, to go back to what I quoted at the start when I said the human built world is already unaligned to human values and well-being because it operates at a scale and according to a logic that eludes our comprehension and thus confounds our agency. The whole notion of scaling up is a notion based around formulae and algorithms. The notion of scaling the family up probably seems ridiculous and the fact that it seems ridiculous is a clear indication of why I think 
scaling up does not apply to anything involving human relationships, or shouldn't. Now, you can't replace Twitter with an anti-Twitter, and you can't replace Facebook with an anti-Facebook, because the way they work is built into how they're built. And the idea that you can take Facebook, turn it round and use it for popular benefit by instituting layers of moderation is a little like trying to the American fight for gun control. You need, you need to get rid of guns, not control them. And you need to get rid of Facebook, not control it. We've talked in the past, I've certainly talked in the past, about the Fediverse, about Mastodon, about these social media platforms that work differently and that allow you to join a tiny group which then federates with other tiny groups and becomes a big group. People say, yes, but that's, that's too complicated. Or at least that's very com that's complicated. And I say to that, make a fucking effort. Yes, it's complicated, that's true. But it's, it's, and yes, it's less convenient. But convenience, as we've seen in lots of ways in the last couple of decades, convenience comes with a heavy price. That's the first thing to say. And the second thing is nobody knew how to use Facebook when it came out. And everybody learned that. So we can just learn again to use things that are less convenient now in order that they move in the direction we think people should be moving. And when I say people, I mean us. I don't mean other people, us. It's also worth noting here that the facts don't bear out the theory. The theory is that with Facebook, you talk to the world. With Twitter, you get a chance to, to make your feelings heard. If you actually analyze how your Facebook posts, your tweets, and my Facebook posts, and my tweets work in the world, you'll discover that neither of us, none of us, nobody listening to this is talking to the world. Possibly Britney Spears is talking to the world, if the world is taken to mean something much smaller than I mean by the world. Possibly Elon Musk is talking to the world with the same proviso, if by the world you mean a world much smaller than the world actually is. But from a Western perspective, he's talking to the world. But we are not. And the chances of us talking to the world through a medium like Twitter or Facebook are no greater than the chances of us having a global pop record phenomenal hit like Gangnam Style. How do we do that? We can't. Yes, you and I can go off and make a record. That's very easy. We can go out and make a record and put it on Bandcamp. We can do that at very little cost. It's, it's affordable. We can stick it on Bandcamp and we've produced it and we can sell the physical CDs if we want and the vinyl records. But we won't produce a global hit. Producing a global hit requires a lot of different mechanisms, many involving international capitalism, some of them involving luck, and the same is true of having a tweet or a Facebook post go viral. It's no more likely. and We need to, 
We need to understand this and accept it because we've been tricked into believing that at any point we are talking to the world or we're potentially talking to the world or we're potentially going viral and we are not. You don't fight big business by becoming big business. You fight big business by ignoring big business, by turning your back on it, by finding small local ways of achieving what you want without involving big business. We should be demanding the impossible and then having fun trying to make it possible. That's my view. And we should remember that things are changing and things are actually beginning to change now in many areas to our advantage. Anil Dash has written that this new year offers many echoes of a moment we haven't seen in a quarter of a century. Some of the most dominant companies on the internet are at risk of losing their relevance and the rest of us are rethinking our daily habits in ways that will shift the digital landscape as we know it. Though the specifics are hard to predict, we can look to historical precedents to understand the changes that are about to come and even to predict how regular internet users, not just the world's tech tycoons, may be the ones to decide how it goes. Alongside this, there are initiatives like the Own Your Web newsletter that keep popping up. Communities keep forming, online, offline. We need to be inverting the hierarchy, keeping in our minds that local and collective stand first and that dreams of possible futures come first. Dreaming of possible futures and making plans to drive us from here to there constitute our primary work. And let's remember while we're doing that to keep dancing. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.